Welcome back to Hotel Bar Sessions, Episode 10. Today's topic, love. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where a group of friends get together and have a conversation as if they had just spent a day at a conference, listening to some awesome philosophy and coming together at the bar to talk the talk. So I'm Shannon Musset, and I'm here with my co-hosts. I'm Ammon Allred. Hey, and I'm Lee Johnson. So let's just get started. Today, we're going to talk about love. So before we get started, let's do our drink orders and tell me about a paper that you went to today. Ammon, you go first. So I went to the favorite paper of every new parent called I Slept in My Hotel Room for a Couple Hours. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds riveting. It was great. And I'm ordering a strong black coffee with a side of Jameson. Fantastic. What about you, Lee? Well, in honor of today's episode, I am going to order a tequila sunrise. I went to a paper that was titled The Logic of the Hot Take. If P, then QED. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, I think I'm going to have a margarita because every time I have margaritas, I'm usually, actually, I'm always with people that I love. And so it makes me feel really good. So I think it'll get me in the mood for today's discussion. And I just got out of a paper called The Eternal Return of the Same, colon, The Eternal Return of the Same. (laughs) (laughs) It was very, it was very repetitive. She did it. What was the argument? It was pretty much the same. <laughs> see, the argument was see above. That's right, see above. All right, so today we are going to be having a conversation about love and what it means, what philosophy has to say about it, and all sorts of ideas that we've been thinking about over the past week. But I also want to say that Dr. J is going to be DJing today's episode, so it's going to be extra special. DJ Ooh. Dr. J. Hey, I want to kick us off with a little clip here. Y'all ready? Let's do it. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. Takes me back to my clubbing days. I don't have clubbing days. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Fantastic. All right, so there are a couple of things that I just want to get us started thinking about by throwing back to some of our earlier episodes. And one is when Ammon was talking about loving something so hard as a kind of aesthetic experience. So Ammon, how does that define or speak to love for you? It's funny. I mean, this was kind of a throwaway moment for me. Like I do philosophy and I think we all do philosophy because there are some things that we just are passionate about and that we find ourselves returning to over and over again and thinking about over and over again. And that's what I mean when I say I love something so hard. It comes back to me at different times in different ways and a little smile on my face and I want to talk more. I want to have another drink. I want to go out and party. I love that. But I think Shannon's question was, do you consider love an aesthetic experience? I mean, I think that there are aesthetic experiences that come because of love. I think love is an existential orientation, though. Well, then that makes me ask Lee the question that I wanted to ask Lee because Lee's so anti-feelings. So I, if love... 
<laughs> Since Lee's so cold-hearted, what is love? Okay, first of all, I'm not anti-feelings, uh, <laughs> but I will say that I am woefully uncomfortable talking about feelings, and that includes love. I don't primarily think about love as a feeling, or at least I don't think that's the most significant aspect of love. I think that I primarily think about love as an activity. It hadn't occurred to me to say it in the way that Emin did, but an existential project is a good way to think about also how I think about love. I know this is going to sound pretentious, but I really think of love primarily in terms of Empedocles' philosophy of love and strife, and that love is a force of unity. And it's what brings things together. And so that manifests in all kinds of ways. And it's not necessarily always a good thing either, right? You also have to have strife to keep things apart. You know, we took a, a pre-Socratics class my first year of graduate school. I think you were a third year graduate student. And you gave a paper on Empedocles in love, which I remember, because I loved it. <laughs> see? So I'm glad to see that you've stuck with your answer. It's just still with me. I can't get over it. I do have to say that I have a few reservations about thinking about love primarily in terms of attraction, which sounds to me how you're describing it. When you talk about it as a natural force, it sounds like magnetism. I, I do think that that is sometimes an aspect of love, but I tend to think of attraction, whether it's sexual attraction or filial attraction or familial attraction as something different from love. I can see that. I'm thinking of it more in metaphysical terms. Uh, but, you know, I actually just speaking of sexual attraction, I will say that the reason why I'm so interested in this topic goes back to really this moment I had in college where I worked in the interlibrary loan department and I loved this job. It was my favorite job. And those were the days you had to go into like the dark, dank ass places of the ass places. <laughs> you had to go to the dark, dank ass? Wow. <laughs> She loved we need that a content job. warning on this episode. Just <laughs> scratch that. No, it's definitely staying in. You're tied to that one for eternity. So you're in the dark and gas places <laughs> so, of the library. Of the library. And, and so you'd pull out those bound editions of journals, and I would always find myself just like spending way too much time reading other articles. And I had read this article just accidentally. It was an anthropology journal, and it was making the argument that love is only something that lasts between 18 months and two and a half years. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, is that not inherently funny? Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> like... It was it was like so crushing to me. It was like when I learned that there was no Santa Claus and I was like, I'm just going to pretend like I didn't learn that and just try to pretend like there is a Santa Claus because I was devastated. I was like, wait, what? Because the whole premise was that's as much time as it takes to impregnate a woman and for her to give birth and for oh, the child. Oh, for fuck's sake. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But, you know, little 19-year-old Shannon was completely gutted by this because I thought, I thought love was so much more than that. And so the idea of sexual attraction, I think, is a good place for us to just get started. The idea of eros and the erotic love. What do you all think of that as a kind of love? What do you make of it? So I absolutely hate the way that this gets talked about in the social sciences. And I'm just going to make a blanket overgeneralization here because I really think all of them fall prey to this error, which is to think about love primarily as a means for the propagation of the species and to think right. about attraction as a mm -hmm. means for the propagation of the species. 
And so the example that you just gave is, of course, a perfect example. Well, people are attracted to other people because they want to have children. They want to right. continue their family line. You know, it's a genetic drive to propagate your line. So I will say I don't have children. I have never wanted to have children ever. Never had any desire whatsoever to have children. I like babies. I like your babies in particular, but I've never wanted to have a child of my own. That assumption that that is a primary motive motivating drive in how we interact with human beings in the 21st freaking century <laughs> is just not well-founded to me. Well, okay, fine. I completely agree with you. It's silly and had its day and maybe it's time to retire that idea. But what about a platonic argument that Eros is sometimes meant as a kind of bodily attraction for the sake of generation, but the higher form of Eros is in order to produce beautiful thoughts and ideas. <laughs> but isn't that still procreative? It's I mean, the I, same I think, thing. Yeah, yeah, I take it if Lee, Lee's point is that we're primarily just misunderstanding the phenomenon of sexual attraction if we try to reduce it to some sort of biological imperative or drive. So then Which, what yeah, is I mean, it? What do, you, what do you think it is if it's not a drive towards the reproduction of thought babies or physical babies, which listeners, by the way, I also don't think that that's what it is. But <laughs> then what is it? It's clearly some physical phenomenon that drives us to do things. I mean, I think that the explanation that you gave before is much more consonant with my own experience. It's a kind of magnetic force, but that attraction doesn't have to be a part of some larger teleological movement where the attraction is just a means to something else. Right. It's just an attraction. It's just a force that one feels. If we're talking about sexual attraction, you know, for another person's body or my partner and I always talk about pheromones, <laughs> pheromones, <laughs> right? We're like, I just love your pheromones. <laughs> I'm glad you I translated did. that out of Memphis. <laughs> <laughs> Fur, and Memphis are pheromones. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk in general about, let's say, reductionistic approaches to what love or, and again, like not even worrying about quote unquote higher forms of love, but just reductionistic accounts of biological sexual attraction and desire in any form. Even if I accepted some sort of like narrowly evolutionary perspective, it's both wrong to move from a teleology being maybe the origin of something to its meaning. But also, I don't think that from what we know, even about our fellow great apes, it seems like sex is for a lot more than just propagation, even if we're just narrowly reductionistic and biological. And yet, that kind of discourse is so incredibly common from people who should know better. What, what is it then? I don't know. I mean, we like touching and being touched by one another. And I think it's in some ways, it's that simple, right? We have affective I don't think it's a feeling, but I think it is a feature of the fact that we have feelings. Right? Well, as Freud says, we start off as polymorphously perverse because we just get pleasure from everywhere. So yeah. it's a continuation of that. Yeah. And I think Deleuze and Gattari's corrective here is also right. Even before something is organized in a sexual way, the fact that we desire things, that we desire to move our bodies and we desire to interact with bodies in a certain way and that it feels good to do so is a fundamental feature of having a body. 
Yeah. And just to return to overly reductionist accounts of sexual attraction and love, et cetera. One of the things that we see on a lot of reality television shows, in particular, The Bachelor and The Bachelorette, which I know Ammon <laughs> and I are devotees of, is that there's this very strict language about the sort of process of ending up in love with someone. And it starts with, I'm attracted to you. And then it goes to, I really like you. I'd like to start this journey with you. And then it goes to, I'm falling in love with you. And it only ends with, I am in love with you. And like the, I am in love with you. It's like this video game prize that you get is not equivalent to any of the prior stages. For one, that sounds so high schooly to me when you say like, well, I'm falling in love with him. I'm not in love with him yet or whatever. Uh, that is just very juvenile. But I think maybe reductionist is a better way to talk about it. It's funny. That example also gets so it shows, I think a lot of times these reductionistic evolutionary, like, and to be clear, I'm not harshing on evolution. I'm harshing on evolutionary sort of like the Stephen Pinkers of the world, right? And the Richard Dawkinses of the world. But is is so thoroughly tied together with capitalism too, because the flip side of the bachelor thing is once you say you're in love, one of two things is happening then. Either you're probably the winner or <laughs> your ass is going home. Right? Yes, yes. <laughs> but Lee, I have to say that I'm preparing to be ready to start to fall in love with you. <laughs> I'm, ready to, I'm, ready to, I'm ready to explore more about this journey together. It just goes back to the earlier idea of love being a project, which right. means something that's active and it's an activity and not something that you have or that you own or that you are. And this idea that I am in love with you is so dead. It just feels like an anchor and a weight instead of something exciting and that you're constantly building. I don't watch The Bachelorette probably because <laughs> I think I would be very annoyed by that. Uh, I'm so sorry for you about yeah. that. But I do have to say that another thing about that narrative is that because sexual attraction is only the first step, it's often presented as simple and uncomplicated that that kind of erotic attraction is just that's just nature doing its business and it's actually later that things require thought and reflection and effort but just going back to what Ammon said that's a really bad understanding of even sexual attraction so what do you all make of arguments about the erotics of being a teacher like the eroticism of the classroom and the relationship between teachers and students. Is there a form of eros there or is that just kind of creepy? Okay, I don't like the move from talking about sexual attraction to talking about students, but I do know that there is a long history of this. I do think that the classroom is an erotic space, not in the sense of sexual eroticism. I think that it's a space of magnetism, of excitement, of stimulation. And I think that it is so unfortunate that for so many years in higher education, that that just got sort of lumped in with sexual eroticism. Yeah. What about you, Ammon? I just want to repeat everything that Lee just said. Yeah. On the one hand, I think of the professors who use that line. And they were almost to a person creepos, right? Totally, right? And it's hard, that's it's hard, just it's true. It's hard but, to disentangle it because yeah. of that. But at the same time, anyone who's taught knows that feeling life and pl playing on and building feelings and using feelings and using your own magnetism in certain contexts is a huge part of teaching. That's all a huge part of teaching. So yeah, it's so often said in this weird, creepily capitalistic, patriarchal way, which is unfortunate because there really is a deeper truth there that's, that's different. 
I just want to say also that the classroom is not the only space like that. Oh, no, not you know, at the, all. The yeah. therapist's office is like that, or even group therapy rooms are like that. I honestly think that the chapel or the synagogue or the mosque. Politics? Uh, yeah, the town hall, right? I mean, there are lots of other places where very similar things go on. I completely agree. I'm always saying to my students that I just, I love them. And I do, I feel an overwhelming amount of love for them. And it's not lip service. It's authentic. It's genuine. It's I think what I really love about the job is just being able to love that my students are and who they are and what they say and what they bring into my life. It's just true. But I wonder, maybe there's a different word that we could use for that. I mean, would philia be any better than that? Although, you know, the Greek word, otherwise it just sounds even creepier. But right. What about philia? friendship and brotherly and sisterly love and all the things that are denoted by that term, would that be any better to describe it? So of course, we all know all about all the different forms of Greek love. But for the sake of our listeners, can you specify some what you mean by the difference here between Eros and Philia? Well, I mean, I think that Philia is more friendship in the sense of community. It's the love that we feel and social bonds with each other. Mm-hmm. And so I think that while it's not necessarily divorced from Eros, it's more just comradeship rather than perhaps more bodily sense of love. Yeah, I think that comradeship is a really great word. It's much better than the words that often get used like brotherhood or sisterhood. Yeah. But doesn't really capture it. Doesn't really capture. I'm I'm not get I'm not getting a whole lot of hits on this one. So it's You're probably not, not it's not capturing the therapist's office for you. I, well, I think that in a lot of the situations we just described earlier, there is a d- dissymmetry in the relationship. I'm not going to get into some sort of claim that eroticism is dis- disymmetrical. Like, I don't think that's true. But I do think that comradeship is symmetrical, generally. Mm-hmm. Do you think it extends to the idea of loving the neighbor and loving one's enemy? Do you think that it extends that far? Or is that just pushing it too far in, in a direction that it doesn't really name? I think it 100% does not extend to loving one's enemy. I think that that is not included in filial love or comradeship or brotherhood. But I do think that it extends to loving one's neighbor. I mean, we're leaving out another Greek term for love, xenia, hospitality, which is, I think, of a piece with philia, with brotherly love or comradeship. Hey everyone! We love to hear from you in the comments on our Hotel Bar Sessions Facebook page. And if you're on Twitter, you can follow the Hotel Bar Sessions podcast at Hotel Bar Podcast. You can also follow the HBS hosts on Twitter. I'm at Lovely Blueness, Ammon is at IdeasManPhD, and Lee is at Dr. Lee M. Johnson. And don't forget to like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. I want to talk about romantic love, which I think is not, which is not all. I mean, hopefully it includes erotic love and filial love and even something greater than that. But it's not just that. It's something else. It's the stuff of dreams and movies and songs. It's what crushed my college soul when I read that love only lasted 18 months to two and a half years. And I thought (laughs) that romantic love is forever, right? Isn't that what it's all about? 
the fedora wearing article writer was like, well, actually, Shannon. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going to do a short DJ break for us here. And it's me you need to show. How deep is your love? That just makes me fall in love just listening to it. I love the Bee Gees, too. (laughs) I have to say, and I hope we can avoid this when we talk about romantic love, I I worry that philosophers talking about love is the most well-actually moment that we often get into, right? Because I completely agree with you. I think that there is something deep and real and profound, or maybe not deep and real, I don't know, but like our friends the Bee Gees say, but that there's something really different and existentially unique about what we call romantic love that's unreducible to these other forms and that philosophers tend to be scared of. So does romantic love have to be reciprocal? Or can I feel romantic love for somebody that is unrequited and that it's still of the same category of a reciprocally shared sense of love? I think the 12 year old me would say it absolutely does not have to be reciprocal and it is not reciprocal, (laughs) sadly. (laughs) But I think now I think it does. I I would say that I think it does have to be reciprocal. I mean, in order to get what I think that I get when I'm in romantic love, part of it has to be that it's something that's being shared. Okay. So (laughs) that did not mean to sound so cynical. I was (laughs) no, but so the experience is something that can only exist when it's being shared with the person. And this might sound like a really dumb and obvious point, but with the person with whom one is romantically in love. Yeah. I'm not so sure. I don't know about that. I yeah, feel like I have had so many experiences of feeling romantic affection, you know, like when you've been put in the friend zone and you're just pining away, but you still have not just feelings of, of filial friendship, but feelings of romantic attachment to this person. And it's just not reciprocated, but it's still there. I think what you're feeling is the feeling of wanting to have a romantic relationship with mm. that person. You want the romance of love. You want the right. romance. You want the romance of romantic love, but there's no romance with one person in it. Well, okay, now with the caveat that romantic comedies are often just creepy and weird and we should talk about the ideology of them. Also sometimes amazing. Oh, I love romantic comedy. Yeah, no, so do I. So do I. But that's what I meant in the caveat. But if I believe, no, I actually love a lot of romantic comedies too. But if we are to believe romantic comedies, one thing that can happen in the friend zone phenomenon that Shannon is mentioning is that you are correctly identifying the relationship that you have with this person, but they are incorrectly identifying it. That's why I'm saying we got to be careful Uh, because that's uh, also very close to stalker territory, right? (laughs) But it's like. You know, so I don't know, like, I I feel like Julia Roberts must have made some, like, My Best Friend's Wedding. I can't remember that movie very well, but I feel like it might have had this kind of plot, right, where it's like, actually, no, she turns out to be a stalker in that one. But there's another one that she also did that's the same plot, where she's like, oh, my goodness, this person who I thought was my friend and who's been in love with me the whole time is really the person I'm in love with. And on that account, it sounds like that would satisfy both your criteria, Lee, and Shannon's criteria in here. 
Yeah, I think I'm convinced of this idea that what you want is the romantic love, but you don't have it. So you're feeling, I guess, some desire for what is not there. So I, I think I might be convinced by that point. Can I can I give you guys a counterexample from my favorite? It's not a romantic comedy, but it's a, it's the most deeply romantic movie ever made. Oh boy, Ooh, here it comes. Interesting. <laughs> In the Mood for Love by Juan Kar Wai. Do you guys know this movie? Of course we don't. Of course we don't know the movie. All right. right. Everybody go home and watch this. Okay, here's the brief upshot of it. And this doesn't give away the ending, There's only one copy of it on real film that shows shows at an art art house theater in Hartford, Connecticut once every five years. No, this is okay. It's a little more common than that. (laughs) But here's, here's the premise, all right? It takes place in Hong Kong in the 60s where all good romance takes place. And two young couples move next door to one another. And very quickly early on, it's clear that one of the husbands and one of the wives are having an affair. And in fact, in 10 minutes, they're gone for the rest of the movie. And we now watch the the jilted couple pick up what they think is a friendship. But here's the question. Will they ever be able to understand that now they're finding love with one another? And because I love it, you can guess that it's not going to go super well. <laughs> but but my point here is, like, I think that that's a deeply romantic relationship where neither person, except for maybe until the very end, realizes that they're in a romantic relationship. And I totally think that's possible. I agree that one always wants reciprocation, but I don't think that that's a feature of romantic love necessarily. So I love rom-coms. I mean, I don't love bad ones, but I just get totally swept up in the pretty and pink kind of story. I just love these things. But what about these movies like John Hughes movies or Woody Allen movies that were so romantic to me and gave me such a model of what romance really is and what love really is? And the makers of these movies now turn out to be kind of creepy. And so I'm having a hard time wondering if I was just given the wrong model of romantic love because I loved them so much. I do want to say that I think a lot of what is often attractive to us, both in a romantic sense and in a sexual sense, is what seems transgressive or what seems forbidden or what seems just out of reach. And so it wouldn't surprise me that that's the case with those directors. But since you brought up those films, it occurs to me now that, I mean, If you were growing up in the 80s and watching television, so much of 80s television involved these extended relationships of tension, right? Where Mm -hmm. it's like, are they going to fall in love? I mean, actually well into the 90s as well, that this is a common trope in television relationships. Cheers, right? The Sam Mm -hmm. and Diane or the, what was the Friends one? Ross and Ross and Rachel. Rachel, Rachel I'll, right? I'll admit that I know that one. Yeah. Or moonlighting. Or moonlighting. Yeah, that's right. one of the best movies ever made. No, no, that's oh, no, no, no I'm thinking of Moon. Never mind. I'm thinking of Moonstruck. Don't listen to me. <laughs> but since we're talking about romantic love, we actually, one of our listeners, John Tory, sent in a uh, short audio clip where he comments on this. Let's take a listen. What is love? So, you know, frequently we think about love as the butterflies in the stomach, the feeling that we have towards someone else where... And, and here I'm thinking about romantic love, but obviously there's multiple different kinds of love. We think about the feelings that bind us to someone else, where we experience them as another part of ourselves, as well as an independent person. So it, it, it doesn't become just me and you, it becomes we. 
And love is the developing of that we. And so when I think about even love that's between friends, between family, it's a we development. Love is a space where we end up becoming more than ourselves. And as part of being more than ourselves, we become connected with our loved ones. So when I'm thinking about love, I'm thinking about it being the, the glue that binds us together and helps inform the actions that we take to reinforce that bond and keep that glue strong. So I really like how that submission went because it begins by talking about romantic love as this sort of bringing together and this we, and then moves beyond that to say, but this is actually a we that gets formed with family and friends. And I think that that's really important. You know, a lot of Bell Hooks's recent work has been on love. And one of the things that she's really critical of is the hyper-focus of love as being romantic love. And that our entire culture industry is geared toward your whole life is meant to be searching for love. And if you don't find it, you're a complete failure and you're never gonna be happy and you're gonna die alone. And we are fed this from the moment we start consuming any kind of cultural media. And as she points out, it is so damaging, first of all, for that to be the ultimate goal. And second of all, for the people who that is either not what they want or it's not what they find. Yeah, I love that comment from John Tory. It is so good. And when he says love is that space where we end up, that is so dead on right. As you both know, for many, many years of my life, most of my 30s and early 40s, I was aggressively single. That's how I like to describe myself. I, I, I can attest to that. <laughs> yeah. Not just not looking to be in a relationship, but aggressively avoiding relationships. And I think that for me, a lot of that had to do with rejecting this idea that I had to complete myself with someone else. And now that I am in a very happy long-term relationship, I think that what happened was I just one day found myself in that space, as, as John says, that space where we are. And I don't think I could have found it if I was just looking for someone to complete me. I don't think I would have ended up in the space where we are, where there's still a me and there's still a her in my case, but there is another space where we are. And that mm-hmm. is what love is. I love that. That's beautiful. That is. Yeah. I, I never thought I'd hear Lee talk like this. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. Like we have, might have to end the episode now because I know mic drop. <laughs> I think just, that's just that's just it. I'm gonna go back to DJing after that because that's about the that's about the extent <laughs> of me wanting to talk about feelings that you'll ever get. <laughs> hey, listeners, we really do love to hear from you. So feel free to send us an audio clip with a comment or a question to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. Also check out the interactive page on our website, hotelbarpodcast.com, where we often post questions or solicit comments about future topic episodes. You may hear yourself on a future episode. So I think you'll both grant me that 
there is a, a hyper focus on romantic love and that that's deeply problematic for all the reasons that I just said. But I think it also allows us to ask about different conceptions of love, like we were just talking about in Tori's comment, which is that there are larger communities and larger ways of thinking about connection. And as much as we love talking about Western thought, there's other traditions that I think might be better suited to talk about this because we are so hyper individualistic that it's about me finding my partner and having my family or whatever, right? And so I think that there are other ways of thinking about this. And I will totally admit, just riffing off of bell hooks, that in thinking about this episode, I was looking into other traditions, understandings of love, and I'm not an expert in these traditions. I am very much a learner. And I actually have to give a shout out to my friend, Aaron McCarthy, who totally helps me with all of these sorts of ideas. But we got to teach to transgress. We got to look into things that we may not be that familiar with because we might find interesting things there. So have, have any of you heard of this concept of Ubuntu? Yeah, I have. It was actually a big part of my doctoral research. I did my dissertation on truth commissions and Ubuntu is a Bantu concept. It's interesting when you first mentioned or prior to this episode, when you mentioned to me that you wanted to talk about Ubuntu, it never occurred to me to think about Ubuntu in terms of love. It's often talked about more as a kind of ontology, like a way of explaining how we are who we are. And of course, we are through other people. That's the Ubuntu motto. But it is interesting to think about that as a love. How do you see that connecting to love? Well, so I was reading this article by Mfo Chavase, and he actually was making the argument that the entire concept is built upon love, but it's sort of a disinterested love. And so he mm -hmm. argues it even goes beyond humanity. It's, you know, just the sense of relationality and interdependency. But he had this lovely line where he said, it's a raw awareness of interdependence. This notion of love is a raw awareness of interdependence, that kind of vulnerability, that sort of openness, that incompleteness that is really only part of something that is relational. And so I think that's more helpful than just thinking it in terms of these isolated Greek terms of various forms of connection. That's great. Yeah. So back to Lee, I mean, so it sounds like then, and I'm not familiar with this concept, but your point about the ontology exactly is what makes it about love. Love as primary ontology, if I'm understanding. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good way to say it. We don't, I think, in the West tend to think of love as an ontological property or an ontological mm -hmm. status. But if what love enables, and sorry, I keep going back to John Tory's comment, but if what love is, is the space where we are, right? Mm -hmm. The space where we find ourselves, then yeah, that would be entirely consistent with this kind of Ubuntu vision of interconnectedness. Yeah, this idea of personhood being defined by relations with others, that there is no person without those relations, but it is entirely defined by relations of others. And you see that in Buddhism and you see that in Confucianism, the sort of emphasis being on the community and the relations before the individual, that there is no individual without that kind of relationship with the community. And so right, another idea that I was looking into is this Brahma Vihara and this idea that the heart has four faces and they all belong 
to the heart, but they're all different aspects of basically love, of the expression and feeling of love. And I think a lot of times people who study these Brahma Viharas, it's sort of meditation, but it doesn't have to be. It's almost like a cultivation of virtues, although that might be a little too Aristotelian to think of it. But, you know, you've got loving kindness, this goodwill to others and ourselves. You've got compassion where you're moved by the suffering of others and empathy where you take joy in the happiness of others. And then equanimity, just the balance of all of those together. And they're all forms of love. I mean, it's not unrelated to the, the forms of love that we've been talking about before, but it also shows a much different view, a much different emphasis, which is on all these connections, right? I'm empathic, I'm sympathetic, I'm open to, I want the thriving of others and I'm harmed by their pain. And I think that that is in some senses, a more robust sense of love than what we've been talking about. I completely agree with you that it is a more robust sense of love. I will say, though, that there is a part of me, and it's the part of me that was trained in Western philosophy, that <laughs> withdraws a little bit from that because I start to feel like now we're expanding love so much as a concept that it's becoming evacuated of any particular meaning. And that is, of course, like I said, part of our training is to separate and define things. It just seems like there just aren't very many concepts that permit of that kind of expansion. I mean, God, nature, love, what else are there that permit to be expanded into this kind of, it encompasses all other things and it includes all other things. Well, being in the one, but none of us love those things. So we can, <laughs> we can move right past those. I mean, I don't know. I, I hear what you're saying, but I think those four aspects are different. Just like Philia and Agape and Eros are different. We haven't really talked about Agape very much, have we? But right, th those are different aspects of love. I think that those four components, those four faces of the heart are different. Compassion is not the same thing as empathy, but they are still expressions, different expressions of love. So I, I don't know that it's so all encompassing as to just erase everything, but I do think that it is more expansive than the traditions that the three of us are more familiar with. One thing to keep in mind, I think, as we think about this expansive notion is this strong ethical, in a very broad sense, component here, because it might be the case that love can name a general relationship that I have, or it can name lots of features of the world that I inhabit. But if there's this ethical orientation, and if it's how I train my heart, then I think that one thing that grounds it and specifies it is the sets of practices that are necessary features of that. So it's not any old relationship to the world. Even if any part of the world can become a relationship that I have of love, there's specific practices and specific ways of being. I agree with this idea of it being a set of practices. And I think you also see that in Confucian ethics, right? With this idea of Ren or authoritative mm -hmm. conduct. That's really about how you engage in practices that make you a perfectly realized human whose heart is oriented towards humans. And there's actually a great line from the Analects, which I want to read, which is Fan Shi asked about knowledge. The master said to concentrate on what is right for the people to be attentively respectful towards ghosts and spirits, but keep them at a distance. This may be called knowledge. He asked about Ren. 
people who are Ren are first to shoulder difficulties and last to reap rewards. This may be called Ren. So this practice of thinking of others and putting others ahead of oneself is, I think, this sense of love that we see in, in the Confucian idea of Ren, which I think is cool. <laughs> Before we jump into our next line of discussion, DJ Dr. J is back. I want to play a little clip from the Bob Dylan recording of Make You Feel My Love. I go hungry, I go black and blue. I go crawling down the avenue. No, there's nothing that I wouldn't do to make you feel my love. The reason that I wanted to play that is because one thing that we haven't talked about yet is how love can go terribly, terribly wrong and how it can lead us into really pathological attachments and behaviors and understanding of ourselves and others. And I thought maybe we should just talk a little bit about love gone sour. I definitely think that that plays off of the earlier discussion about the overemphasis on romantic love, because if one ties one's identity up entirely with a partnership or partnerships that form the sort of romantic we, and then that is no longer or that falls apart, and that is the ultimate goal, that usually leads to tremendous feelings of pain and sometimes becoming a creeper. Yeah, and I think that there is kind of built into, especially Christian and especially Western conceptions of love, this idea that love is long-suffering with an yeah. emphasis on the suffering part of it. Right. And as we know, this is what gets people into deeply abusive and un unhealthy relationships is that they think, oh, but the love is going to get us through it. The love is worth it. And that is really, really dangerous. Right. At that point, you're charting the movement from what might be the love we've been talking about in the praiseworthy form to dependence and dependency. Yeah. And the thing about dependency is there's no space where the we is. Right. Dependency. There's just a disappearing into the other. Right. I mean, I think that's certainly true. I do wonder if that sort of pathology is only a feature of romantic relationships. Because yes, there's this concern about this feature of dependency when you think that the love is going to sustain you. But I think that one part of the pathology of love also is the extent to which one's whole world gets wrapped up in certain relationships, not just romantically, and therefore the dangers, the pitfalls, and the places where love has gone wrong do assume a real danger. It, it becomes a crisis in meaning. I think that's important because we haven't really talked about other forms of love like parents and children yeah. and that those can go terribly wrong when they become these relationships of dependency as well and that we miss it when we're only focusing on romance. Yeah. And another example that is not romantic love where love becomes pathological and self-harming is in a lot of people's work. You know, we all love our jobs and we love what we do. 
but we continue to love it as the actual conditions of our industry have yeah. become worse and worse and worse and more and more and more harmful, not only to us, but to people who we are bringing up in the profession saying, but yeah. it's about loving philosophy, you know, and that is, well, it's pathological. Yeah. Well, and how, yeah. I mean, that's actually such a good point because what do we tell people? We tell people find a job that you love. And maybe we ought to question what exactly we mean by that, because that's a right in, in under capitalist society, that's very easily exploitable. Take the things that you are passionate about and that you love and have that be all of the energy that you expend. And it's never enough and always more will be demanded. And at that point, isn't that kind of abusing the love? Yeah, I mean, I think that we should tell people find a job that you love because the other option under a capitalist system is find a job that pays a lot. And I think that that also creates unhappy and unhealthy lives. But I think that we really do need to remind people find a job that you love, but that love don't count that as part of your paycheck. Yeah. And don't have that be I, your entire identity, right? There are other things to do that you love that are not compensated for financially. You're more than just your profession. You're more than just your family. You're more than just your partner. And yet, are we saying this in a way that is reinscribing the individual? Or is saying this, you're more than that, a way of trying to affirm the, the space needed for love, the space needed for there to be a we? I think that that's a fine line to walk. And I don't think we always walk it successfully. Oh, you know why we don't always walk it successfully? Let me just uh, DJ here. I bet you got an answer. I got one. Damn, that's hot. Love, love is a madness, according to the ancient Greeks, right? Right. We're back where we yeah. started. <laughs> Just speaking of going back to where we started, I am really fascinated by the idea of love as being some kind of cosmic or metaphysical principle. And just thinking of it in those terms, going on to sort of the more pathological aspects of it, back to Freud. When Freud talks about Eros and Thanatos, he talks about it in Civilization and Its Discontents, and he says this monstrous power of love that is required for civilization comes at the cost of everyone's happiness, that we're all completely miserable because love forces us to be united in civilization and therefore forces us to repress and sublimate in ways that don't give us the kind of happiness and satisfaction that we want. And so in that sense, civilization is pathological because love is forcing us to be together and otherwise we'd really just be happier tearing each other apart. And scene. <laughs> All right, so I've been assuming that our podcast is not popular enough yet for us to get sued into bankruptcy for all the copyright violations that we're committing. But in the unlikely event that that does happen, I want to make sure I get my money's worth. So here's another love song.
just go back to loving things so hard? I think that yes, we have entirely yeah. lost the sort of rock ballad belting <laughs> out of what you love. And I miss that. Foreigner, you say it. You want to know what love is. You're just speaking what all of us want to know. I hope we can have some fun also talking because we've danced around the idea, but it's true that love and discussions of love and conversations about love and the things that we say we love permeate so much of our music, of our art, of our culture. And I think we are appreciative of both its good and its bad when we do that. Something about love makes us want to express ourselves. And so I'm curious, what are some of your guys' favorite, like, I will try not to do weird movies nobody's heard of. But you are, are you... so going to do a weird movie that no one's heard of. What are some of your guys' favorite, whether it's books or movies, about love? So I'm almost embarrassed to admit this, but I will tell you that still to this day, one of the most romantic moments in any movie that I've ever seen, and it's just seconds, is in the gazebo, in the sound of music, oh. furry, with the furry lens, where Captain Von Trapp turns to Maria and says, but how can you marry someone when you're in love with someone else? And then they oh, sing I just that, got goosebumps. And they, yeah. sing that, they sing that song about, I must have done something good when I was Somewhere a child. Somewhere in my youth <laughs> childhood. Yes. I and must that is... have done something good. Sorry, I love the, I love the sound <laughs> of music. So no, sorry. No, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I've said to you both before that Captain Von Trapp was one of my first movie crushes. Uh, but, <laughs> but yeah, I think that, that there's something about that. It, it just gets at the sort of long simmering tension of a relationship that is forbidden in the secret in the middle of the night with a furry lens on the scene they just look in each other's eyes and you know that's it they're in love all right so yeah. if, we're, if we're going through the the long sort of build up simmering moment of love i will say to this day and i have probably watched this movie and read this book 30 times pride and prejudice and oh, the yeah. Kira Knightley, Matthew McFadden version, which is so perfect. And there's a scene that just captures everything that I ever dreamed about, which is Matthew McFadden walking across the misty moors and Elizabeth goes up to meet Darcy and they hold hands as the sun comes up. Oh, so I've, I love Pride and Prejudice. I've never seen that version. <gasps> oh my gosh, it's perfect. It is, it's perfect. What about you, Eamon? <laughs> so Eamon's going to be, before film was even invented, there was a 14th century Uzbekan film. <laughs> there was a Greek stele that All right, so I'm, was I'm, unearthed I'm... near Pompeii. All right, I've got, I've got two, here are my two normcore answers, but they're both very sincere. So I also have Sound of the Music, but I'm going to go with a different musical. So you guys have talked about The Simmering Love. I think that the story of Romeo and Juliet is silly, and it's, oh. not about, and it's not about love, it's about youth. But West Side Story, I adore. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. as smalty as it is, I think that the music conveys a message about love that even as much as I love, you know, we all love Shakespeare, Romeo and Juliet needs to be sung. And that's what West Side Story is, because they're discovering who they are and they find this perfect person as they're discovering who they are. And it's only going to end badly through no fault of their own. Or maybe it is through their fault because they loved, they loved too hard. So that <laughs> <laughs> And then I also, I also really love Nora Ephron rom-coms. 
as awful and as horrible as both Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks are in it, I genuinely love You've Got Mail. I think it's oh, a great story. God. Isn't that it's the funny. one where she's sick and they make out when they're she has a cold? Is yeah. it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. I, I, well, and I'm he's so he's like the awful. By he's, that. And he's Jeff Bezos. Right? He's Jeff. Oh, Ammon, Ammon, you're really going to have to do some work on yourself to try to figure out what's going on here. I know, right? And then also the Decameron by Boccaccio, which is, I don't know if it's 14th century, but it's around then, is is really good too. I think that we should also talk about things in our lives that we love so hard. I'll go first. The two things that immediately come to mind are there's a juke joint in Memphis. It's called Wild Bill's. It's a tiny little space that is extremely loud, used to be extremely smoky, and it has live music. And it's been a sort of home away from home for me for 25 years at this point. And I can walk in the door and honestly, I feel love. That's what I feel. I feel love for my city. I feel love for the music. I feel love for all of the people there and just the whole scene. That's one thing that I love so hard in my life. The other thing, I mean, obviously I love my partner, Cassandra, but specifically she's a jeweler and I love when she comes home at the end of the day and has what she calls shop hands, like these dirty, dirty hands where she's been dealing with metals all day. And there's something about that. It's so dumb and insignificant, but every time I see them, I'm like, oh, I love you so much. There's nothing dumb about that at all. I think that's exactly what we love so hard. I mean, I'm going to say yes, putting aside the people in my immediate family and friend circles who I love so hard. I would say that two things that come to mind for me are the mountains. Like I genuinely feel overwhelmed by love and gratitude when I just go hiking. So that I definitely feel, I feel that love and probably Broovies, which is joint where you can go drink (laughs) beer and order food and watch movies that I miss so much because it was like a Friday ritual that I would do with my friends before COVID. And we did it for years and it was always some crappy movie. And I just loved so much the nasty, sticky grossness of it and the big pictures of cheap, nasty beer. So yeah, I love that really hard too. What about you, Ammon? I'm sorry, I'm going to be really schmaltzy. So I I apologize in advance. Let me say more about the Decameron. (laughs) Yes, that's right. (laughs) Let's talk about Boccaccio some more. No, I mean, like right now, all my time goes to my family. That's just the reality right now. I have five kids. We just had twins last year. So I I met my wife, Emily. We knew each other. Toledo's a small town, right? But she was running an open mic and I went and I read some poems and she played some music. And I already had two kids at this time and to bring somebody else into my kid's life seemed like a lot. At first, that was not the plan, right? That was never my plan. But as she started to hang out with my older kids, like we formed a unit and we became a family. A we. <laughs> oh, that's Aww, beautiful. that is. That's not schmaltzy. <laughs> anyway, and now we have three more kids. <laughs> Apparently the arrows worked. Our, that's right. It takes all of our time and it's really hard, but I, I that's what I love. How about one last track before we wrap it up? It's physical. You must try to
heart. I need a heart, even though a heart can be broken. I don't know. It's just a secondhand emotion. (laughs) (laughs) It's physical. It's logical. So it looks like it's last call again, and we're getting kicked out. Lee, what are we going to be talking about next week? All right. For our next episode, we're going to be talking about privacy. Is it dead? Is there any point in even arguing about privacy anymore? It's going to freak me out, isn't it? I'm going to get all freaked out by this. You're going to get terrified. Oh, yeah. I'm going to be sharing lots of stories that are going to freak Shannon out about how she has no privacy, not even the privacy that she thought she had on her Go Duck Go or whatever it's called. I know. (laughs) Duck Duck Go. Dang it. I knew it. And it was already bad in the first place. All right, everybody. I'll catch you next time. See See you later.